Blog Talk Radio. Once again, we're coming to you live from the Eastern Radio Show studios in St. Augustine, Florida. Thanks for listening to Eastern Airlines Talk Radio. My name is Neil Holland, and the producer of the show, and we have a great show for you tonight. And to all the listeners around the world, we say welcome, and join us for the celebration of the life of Eastern Airlines every Monday, which we do at this time, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time now. Hello, Eastern family and friends. As your producer said, it's great having you with us. My name is Chuck Albright. I'm filling in for Jim Hart, who's traveling from his home from Martha's Vineyard to his winter home in West Palm Beach. He's taking his time, and we're sure he's visiting his friends along the way. Be safe, Jim. I'm coming to you live from my home in the village of Florida, where the weather was 77 degrees today, hardly cloudy, and all the golfers were very happy. Welcome, and thank you for listening and calling the show. We have truly, you have truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact, we can now say we became Eastern International Radio Show with over 50 countries listening in. So we simply say, hello world. We'd love to hear your comments and share your memories with the radio listeners from around the world during the broadcast. If you haven't called a show before, all you need to do is call... 213-816-1611 and just say hello to talk to us on the air, live every Monday evening. We can identify many countries around the world who listen in with our blog talk radio application. Isn't it great that we can keep the Eastern legacy going out to not only the Eastern family, but to the listeners from many different countries around the world? That's what we try to do every week on the Eastern Radio Show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to these broadcasts? Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage at www.easternradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in on our site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash now remember to abbreviate the word CAPTAIN to C-A-P-T. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number, 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Let me, let me repeat the number so you can write it down for your Monday night visits. By the way, tell our friends about us. Call in 213-816-1611. Our membership is growing. We are now 1,025 and growing. Oh, wow. That sounds great. Don't forget, you can listen in on any of our 4.30 Monday night broadcast and our 100-plus Thursday broadcast by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. 
That's Captain C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, and scrolling down through the archives of the broadcast. Each episode is briefly described. We're over 500 episodes now, including the Eastern Airlines Music and History Show. Our lines are always open for calls, and if you choose not to participate and talk live with our hosts, we ask you to please mute your phone, as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noises. I see we're number one for payoff. So, Captain, let's get Eastern Flight 436 in the air. Tower Blue, it's 650, we'll tip up. 50, 27 left, put a land, 230, 227 to left, Blue, 650. 29 right turn, ground tonight. that doesn't plan for the future may not have one. Five years ago, Eastern saw the future in a remarkable aircraft. Now it's here. The new Boeing 757, the most advanced, most fuel-efficient commercial jet ever built. It's going to help Eastern hold down the cost of flying for years to come. We earn our wings for Do pilots have secrets? Of course they do. And not unlike everyone, they also have secrets in the cockpit, which we will talk about in our program tonight. We have other breaking news we will share with our Eastern family and listeners around the world that we think you should be hearing. So please stay tuned as we take a trip on EAL Flight 435. Mike? Yes, the Eastern Airlines radio show looks into the flight deck of air carrier aircraft and the men and women who fly these multi-million dollar flight technological wonders. We would like to share a few of the behind-the-scenes secrets of airline pilots. They may not have told you everything when they went into the cockpit to have their wings pinned on you or your shirt when you were standing in the doorway of their office called the flight deck or an earlier name, the cockpit. Flight deck versus cockpit was always controversial. As you boarded or deplaned the aircraft, this is when they were going to pin those little wings on you. So here are a few interesting facts about the the working in the sky. This This was written by Jake Rosen. Captain Jim Holder, how about sharing the description of this office as it can be as high as over 40,000 feet off the ground? Yeah, okay, Mike, Uh, for sure. It's like no ordinary office in a downtown skyscraper, that's for sure. Often described as having the best view from the office, quote-unquote, in the world, airline pilots are tasked with shuttling hundreds of passengers to and from domestic and international destinations. The responsibility is considerable, and so are the requirements. Commercial airlines typically demand thousands of hours of flight time and these paying in the cargo and regional jobs before they even grant an interview. And even then, the odds of making it to the prize left seat, the captain's seat, they're a long shot. But I, like you and Neil and others that call the show, we were indeed lucky. To find out what makes these top-class aviators kick, we asked three pilots from major commercial carriers about life in the skies, owing to their media adverse industry, none, and I don't blame them, wanted to identify their employer. One prefers to be known only by his first name. And here are a few amenities that go along with the job. Number one, they can fly for free. They just don't want to. Pilots don't really get better employee perks than anyone else who works for the airline. While they can fly for free, they have to wait for a standby that's available seat to be open on a flight, most pilots planning a vacation or some structured itinerary don't want to be at the mercy of that variable. It's too unpredictable, says Patrick Smith, a first officer, that's a co-pilot back in the old days, 
and the author of Cop Tip Confidential. If a baggage handler has a more seniority than me, he'll be ahead on the standby list. Number two, there's no reading in the cockpit. Eric I don't know how to spell the name, A-U-X-I-E-R, a captain with more than two decades of experience for a major carrier says that most name-brand airlines prohibit taking anything into the cockpit that could serve as a distraction. That means no magazine, no paperback, no music, and no knitting. I can't. I never saw a pilot try to knit. We talk amongst <laughs> ourselves, he says, and that's all we're legally allowed to do. And I'll tell you, that is broken many, many, many times. Number three, there's no napping either, technically. But I can't say it never happened, says Tim. He's a pilot for a major airline. And he says at present the regulations do not officially allow it, but sleep studies have proven that short catnaps, especially when flying in the wee hours, are actually beneficial to wakefulness. And I can say that is absolutely first-class table grade true. True. I've done it myself. Unfortunately, the FAA hasn't put anything in writing that allows this. Quote, to avoid exhausted pilots, the FAA has issued a guide, FAR-117, thank you, FAA, that mandates minimum rest periods like full eight hours of sleep and maximum working time for a pilot, usually no more than 30 hours a week, according to that same guy, A-U-X-I-E-R. <laughs> well, there. There's three we can start with. How about a few more, Don? Speak up. Don? Commonly known as the office. To have a look at all the glass, switches, lights, knobs, buttons, levers, and more. Can they? Number four. Most pilots will let you look around. Before the plane doors close, Smith says, many pilots, excuse me, are happy to offer rent or nervous flyers and kids a peek inside the cockpit. People are more than welcome to come up and say hello before pushing off. He sa- That's what he says. 90% of the pilots love it when people do that. Back in the day, pilots were even allowed to let you watch them perform their duties with the door of the cockpit open. And maybe when they reached cruise altitude and they turned the seatbelt sign off, they may uh, even come up to the flight deck. Those days are gone. But you say, I've seen extra seat in the cockpit not occupied by a pilot. And yes, there is a spare seat in the cockpit. The cockpit has what is known as a jump seat, a retractable third chair that allows the FAA inspectors or trainees to tag along on flights. It is not in use. If it's not in use, it can be used by a qualified pilot and other professional perk or benefit. That's sort of. In most cases, especially on long flights, a pilot would rather sit in coach as in the jump seat because it's very uncomfortable. But for those pilots who commute to work, it can be occupied when the captain's, with the captain's approval, of course, to get their assigned base for a scheduled flight. Number six, they wish you wouldn't ask them to pull over. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm not sure about this one. (laughs) (laughs) Though pilots don't usually have direct interaction with passengers, Smith prefers travelers who don't perceive them as bus drivers, asking if we can land so they can get off. It doesn't work that way. That's what he says, and it's true. One woman who left her medication in her checked luggage wanted someone to go downstairs and get it. That's very (laughs) unfortunate for her. Okay, Dorothy, how about some more secrets to share with our listeners? Okay, Don. Many think there is an extra room underneath the flight deck flooring because of the gigantic size of some of the airliners. So we say 
There is no action movie cargo compartment underneath the plane. Wesley Snipes and Harrison Ford have misled the movie-going public into believing there's an entire lair under a plane full of luggage, pets, and enough room to have a boxing match. It's just not true. You might have alcoves accessible under the cabin or the cockpit, Smith says, but they're the size of a closet. And I might add, most are where electronic equipment is located. We've already mentioned that extra seat in the cockpit, so here's another secret. They can have one hell of a commute, as we all know. In theory, a pilot can live anywhere in the country since they're able to catch rides on flights that connect them to their base airport. But commuting takes up more unpaid days per month, requires them to take early flights to fill available seats, and generally make a hard job that much harder. If the airplane fills up with paying passengers, the the pass-riding employees will simply be left behind. Kim says sometimes it's necessary to leave home the day before to ensure that you are in base in time for your trip. Commuting can really suck. Kim no longer does it. He moved closer to his base and now drives to work. And what about that jump seat? Well, in most cases, another commuter has already taken it, so you have to arrive early enough to get that free ride to work. Now, here is one that Patrick writes about in this book. Bathroom needs can be painful, and this is number nine. According to Smith, kidney stones are a common occupational hazard. Pilots don't always hydrate properly, and post-9-11, Federal Aviation Association, or FAA as we know it to be called, Rules about entering the cabin can make a trip to the bathroom a chore. It all adds up to stress on the urinary tract. The protocols for leaving the cockpit are very strict, he says. It's inconvenient to get up when the cabin crew is serving refreshments, too, so we tend to hold it in. Mike, what else can you tell us about the listeners that might relieve and smooth their nerves? Yes, some, do you think pilots put the aircraft into unusual attitudes just to make the trip a little more interesting for fun, uh, as the pilots would say to themselves? Uh, number 10, they shake their heads at the passenger embellishment factor. The PEF is pilot slang for travelers who travel, travelers who tend to exaggerate situations, uh, sensations of air travel, even in rough turbulence. The plane is never changing attitude altitude more than 10 to 20 feet either way. Smith says, there is an idea that it's plummeting hundreds of feet. Not true. Same with takeoffs and descents. The nose is at most 20 degrees on takeoff, uh, nose up, or 5 degrees down on landing. If you put it into a 30-degree nose dive descent, you would know how steep that really was. Yes, the aircraft can exceed those steep altitudes, uh, uh, attitudes, but some passengers could have a heart attack if they did exceed these limits. And that for this reason, the companies have put limitations to the normal performance of the aircraft. Eleven, the co-pilots aren't sidekicks. Despite what, what the movies and televisions would have you believe, a co-pilot is not some kind of a subordinate apprentice who looks to be a captain for all the answers. The co-pilots are fully qualified pilots. Uh, that's a crazy name they come up again. Exeter says they could say they could just as easily be the pilot. The this that is a solely a factor of the seniority which gets you into that left seat. Smith bristles when the media outlets refer to a singular pilot in stories where we normally take turns. Of course, one of us flies. They switch. They don't switch seats, but they switch legs. And one would fly to London, and the other would fly back to New York. There are two pilots. The autopilot, number 12, the autopilot isn't a code for no pilot needed. Another pilot pet peeve is the idea that they climb into the cabin to watch a commuter uh, do their job, for the, the computer do their job for them. An airplane is 
No more flies itself than a high-tech operating room performs an organ transplant by itself, Smith says. There are routing changes, communication issues, navigation issues, monitoring, fuel burn, and miscellaneous other things that go on in the cockpit. There is always some task going on. We might not have our hands on the control wheel as often as we did years ago, but we're still flying it. That might not be true with some. Uh, Captain Jim, how about those magnificent men in their flying machines with their leather flying caps, goggles, and scarves stretched out over the wind? Oh, yeah, Mike. I love those movies, too. (laughs) However, they're they're decked out in those dark military-style uniforms, golden stripes of authority. Actually, we had four, didn't we, Mike, when we were flying? Oh, number 13, the uniform gets them a lot of respect, especially in foreign countries. And that's true, uh, as far as I knew, and flying down in the Caribbean and Mexico and Canada even. Pilots in uniform seem to receive more respect when flying overseas than the U.S. Smith said. I'm not sure who Smith is. Culturally, I don't know what it is. In some countries, it's maybe that air travel is not taken for granted as much, like in West Africa. Little kids come running over to you. All the crew members are addressed as captain. They salute you, and we salute them back. As a matter of fact, while waiting for my ride to LaGuardia one early morning departure, an elderly lady asked me to get her luggage and take into the lobby of the old Sheraton Hotel in New York. She thought I looked like a bell captain standing there waiting to help her check in. And she didn't give me a tip either. At my age now, I would have thought so too. Number 14, major media, that's the TV folks, has gotten a lot of play out of profiling pilots who are paid so little that they sometimes apply for food champs and make ends meet. Well, that's not too far removed for the, some of the airlines, the smaller airlines. While this is more common in regional circles, Tim says it's not far-fetched either. People seem to assume that if you fly for an airline in any capacity that you're loaded, Tim says, regional carriers can make as little as $21,000 a year, according to Bloomberg, while the cost of flight training can exceed six figures. That's true. Number 15, they really love landings. Of course, pilots love landings. That's when we can show out. Mowing to many flight techniques of being computer-assisted, pilots tend to appreciate landings, which are still almost fully occupied by the human hands in the cockpit. That would be the captain and the first officer. Grease jobs. It's something that requires all of our skills, that mystery guy says. It's where there's a lot of job satisfaction from. It comes from that. It's a volatile industry with no guarantees. You just need to enjoy the journey. Most of the eastern pilots enjoyed certain airports like Washington National because all the turns down the Potomac and then low-altitude acrobatics while lining up with the runway without hitting the 14th Street Bridge. I did that many times. You grab the left side of that <laughs> river when you pass the, the uh, Washington Monument. You rolled it in, rolled it back, freaked it on, and the passengers <laughs> loved it as much as we did. Chuck, what's going on with you? Well, since you guys shared some secrets from the cockpit, how about this from the cabin, or should I say lavatories? This is one of those uh, you-can't-make-this-stuff-up-folks type things. Now, here's the secret that the two pilots who got caught uh, wished they would have never made the secret list. Southwest Airlines is denying an allegation that two of its pilots hit a camera in an airplane bathroom and live-streamed the video calling it an inappropriate attempt at humor, commencing <laughs> on a fake attendance law school, uh, lawsuit claiming that she saw live stream video from the bathroom on a device in the cockpit, in the aircraft cockpit. Renee Steinmacher, a Southwest flight attendant for more than 20 years, said in court papers that she was shocked to see two pilots allegedly invading not only her privacy, but those of the passengers. In her lawsuit against the airline, she claimed that she made the discovery when she went to the cockpit during a February 2017 flight from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Phoenix, Arizona. She was in the cockpit so the captain could use the lavatory, she said. 
When I walked into the cockpit, I noticed that his iPad was located on the window, and on it appeared a picture of a pilot. I looked farther, and I realized it was our pilot. The captain was in the lavatory when I looked even <laughs> further. I stared at it and realized that the picture was moving. So it appeared to be a live streaming video of the captain in, live, in the lavatory, she told NBC News in an interview on Monday. She said she asked the first officer, who was in the cockpit with her, about the video. The first officer said it's a new streaming system and that the camera was hidden so no one would ever find it. Steinecker <laughs> said in court papers. She told NBC News on, on Monday that the information came to her as a complete shock. It occurred to her, Steinecker, that she, having used the lavatory and has many other attendants and passengers, had likely been filmed. Her oh. lawyer, Ronald Goldman, <laughs> said in a previous ABC News interview. Don, <laughs> can you carry on? You are a hard act to follow. <laughs> but Chuck, her lawsuit said that when Steinacre was back on the ground after the plane landed, she reported the incident to the airline, but she claims in court documents she was directed by, by Southwest Airlines to keep what she had seen to herself. Renee Steinacre was directed by a supervisor that she was not to talk about anybody about what happened. She was warned that if this got out, if this went public, no one, I mean no one, would ever fly on this airline again. That's what her lawsuit claims. Southwest Airlines told ABC News that the company had investigated the incident and denied her claim that a camera was in the plane's bathroom. The, the false video reference made uh, to the in-flight crew was an inappropriate attempt at humor. When the incident happened two years ago, we swiftly investigated the claim, confirmed that no cameras placed in any of the laboratories on board and uh, <clears throat> addressed the reported event with the crew involved, Southwest Airlines does not and has never used video surveillance in our laboratories, and the company does not condone the comment made no matter the incident. Again, the event was investigated thoroughly, and no corroboration of the allegation was found. We will vigorously defend the lawsuit, Southwest said, in a statement, Steinacher told ABC News that she did not find the incident funny. That's not a joke. If you think that you're being violated and someone's watching you in the laboratory, no, that's not a joke, she said. Both pilots have denied the allegations. Southwest said the pilots in Steinacher remain employees of the airline. It is clear from its statement that, <clears throat> excuse me, Southwest wanted to pass off this offensive event as a joke, and it still fails to recognize the gravity of the harassment and threat to the safety of the flight. The purpose of this suit is to make sure that the culture of the culture of treats sexual harassment and hostile working environments. At 30,000 feet is is not a joke. It will hope it, it had hoped the end of the successful conclusion of this lawsuit, Goldman said in a statement to ABC News. This article was reported by ABC News, Christine Theodore, Jason Kuyang, Amanda Britt Apney Stevens, and Anthony McMahon. Contributed to the reporting of this story. And we have any discussion about this? No. Well, I got a few things to say. Okay. <laughs> I can confirm that there are hanky panky things going on in the John uh, laboratories on airplanes. 
However, my experience was it wasn't the pilots or the flight attendants. It was the passengers. And on one particular flight, they were in there for an hour and a half. We couldn't get them to come out. And they were not traveling together. They met each other on their seats. And when we landed, the lady involved was greeted by a man at the gate for the flight attendants, giving her hugs and kisses, glad to see his girlfriend. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a true story. <laughs> yeah, a few of those. Oh, boy. Yeah. It sounds like the Mile High Club. Yeah. Oh, it was for about two hours. <laughs> well, I got, we had I got three guns instead of just one. I got one better than that. Uh oh. Uh, Jim. Uh-oh. Uh, I had a flight, uh, uh, one of these all nighters over to LA. And the flight attendant, 727, I just checked out his captain, I think it was, early days. And the flight attendant came up, I guess, uh, halfway to L.A., and she said, uh, Captain, I want you to see something back here and tell me what you think. So uh, uh, she said, it's back here by the galley. Come on back. So um, I got up, and I went back, and, of course, all the cabin lights were dimmed because it was the night coach to L.A. And uh, mm-hmm. we got back to the galley, and I uh, I said, now, what do you want to show me? She said, uh, now, look through the curtain. You remember where the curtain was on the 727? You could actually see a couple of seats in first class mm-hmm. if you looked forward. And so there was this little opening right there in the last seat in first class. Mm-hmm. There it was. I mean, I mean, there, there the two of them were. And they had a quilt, one of these... Uh, Blankets of Eastern blankets mm-hmm. on, top of, on top of them, but the motion top, you could understand it. what was going on. <laughs> and she she looked at me and she said, "What do you think we ought to do?" I said, "Nothing, absolutely nothing." <laughs> true story, true story. I well, could not believe what I was seeing. Give me a round well, of applause well, when they get through. Yeah. Along, yeah. along this line, Neil, let me. Yeah, now, I think the captain would have signed off a ticket. Go ahead, Joe. I was told this by, go, uh, by a good friend, and, and he was not exaggerating. He assured me this was true, and he was the first officer at the time coming back from Seattle and a long night flight, and it had a lot of guys returning when the Vietnam War was winding down and, you know, they were not treated nice in the halls and the terminals and everything else, at least a lot of them. And they were coming back, and there was a bunch of soldiers on that airplane coming back in coach. I guess Seattle to St. Louis, Omaha, St. Louis, on the line and all that. And he said that the flight attendant came up and said there was a lady back there that was giving these guys uh, a very... A very nice welcome back to the United States after the Vietnam War. And coach, he said the captain sent the, sent the flight engineer back, second officer, to see what the hell was going on. And he came back. He said they even had lights on back there in the rear of the airplane, and everybody was watching, taking turns. <laughs> and he came back up and told the captain, he said, oh, God. <laughs> I'll be glad when we get to Omaha. <laughs> and it, this one lady was giving him a hell of a welcome back to the United States of America. And he said that was a true story, and I do not doubt it one bit. <laughs> I would think that the guy would his wings to the girl. Yeah. Well, you know, we talked also about landings, and, uh, of course, that probably is the most enjoyable part of flying airplanes is uh, is landing, not just to uh, go home after, after you get off work, but, I mean, the, uh, the, the art of putting an airplane down, like we said earlier, uh, in Washington National, it was always, I didn't want to give up that privilege of being captain making that landing because it was so much mm-hmm. fun. Make all those turns right. uh, down the Potomac or up the Potomac or let's see, down the, up the Potomac, uh, down the Potomac, excuse me. Down the Potomac. And down the landing the on 1-8 yeah. 
rang on one mm-hmm. eight, and uh, right. and you you remember you can see almost at your wingtip the Lincoln Memorial. I mean the uh, mm-hmm. yeah Lincoln Memorial, mm-hmm. and then and then you would uh, would be down to about 400 feet, crossing over the 14th Street Bridge, making that right turn, and rolling out just as your wheels touch the ground. Right. How many times did we do that, Jim? <laughs> that was a lot of fun too, and occasionally I made oh. a good landing out of it, but not always. <laughs> <laughs> and then the and, and you know what, back. guys? It, it, it's the same feeling when you first landed at an airplane when you got when you were doing your training to get your pilot's license. Yeah. yeah. First landing right. in an airplane, and you had your hands on the controls. And here's yeah. another thing we said earlier about. Uh, the degrees uh, the company wants to uh, keep the airplane down so passengers don't have heart attacks. And if you take a 757 off out of St. Thomas, going back to uh, San Juan or either to Atlanta, um, you can pull that thing up almost like a fighter jet. (laughs) And you could scare the hell out of everybody on that airplane because there was so much power and that angle of attack on that airplane, you could almost point it straight up. Uh, and, uh, but we were limited to, uh, uh, the Airbus. Now, if you put it in more of a, a bank of 30 degrees, uh, bank, that airplane would give you a stick shaker. I've had many hours in the, in the A300 because of its, uh, stubby, uh, thick wings. It just wasn't a high altitude airplane. So, yeah. but what airplane? What airport did, besides hmm. national did you guys like to land, Jim and uh, and Mike? Well, well myself, uh, I uh, we flying out of L.A. and San Francisco. We, of course, they used to have that approach going into L.A. We used to land twenty five left all the time, and the. The approach would start out there at an intersection called Civet, 52 miles out. And Mm -hmm. you just go, it was a step-down thing and all of that, and you were in trail of everybody, and you were worrying about that wake turbulence from the 7.5s because we were in a 7.2. So I would always cheat a little bit and go a little above the the glide path, but it was always, it was the the longest approach that you could make with uh, under uh, scrutinization of the ATC all the time that we could make such a a nice stabilized approach to get in there and and most of the time put it on pretty easy because you had plenty of runway to do that but that was always a nice runway but the uh the uh i guess uh, other than that Shannon Ireland was one that you could always uh you can always count on having a crosswind landing going in there and yeah. places like Osaka, Japan. We used to go in. I remember the first time they put that new runway, new airport in, and I, I had an approach going in there. It was, uh, and it was, it, it just felt so good all the way down. Everything was right in the slot, and I ended up having a basher on the landing. <laughs> I hate that kind of thing when it happens. <laughs> I always say that the, the difference between a good landing and a bad landing was an open or a closed cockpit door. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you where I really enjoyed landing big time, and I'll tell you why. I only did it twice, and that was when I was with ATA out the east and going into Gunnison, Colorado, at eight thousand plus feet above sea level, landing into a blind canyon uphill. And when you pass through 800 feet, I don't know, Mike, if you've ever gone into Gunnison, you were going to land one way or the other because you couldn't go around. You were coming into a blind canyon. And I think that's the only place I've ever landed where I didn't have an option of going around, you know, down close to the runway. You were going to land when you were landing uphill at Gunnison. And uh, I did that with a full airplane twice with uh, American Transair, and obviously uh, we landed and survived. I never wanted to well, do that again. In our <laughs> operation, we used to go into all the ski resorts, and Aspen was one of them. And, of course, they mm-hmm. don't let seven twos go in and out of there anymore. But you landed mm-hmm. one way and went out, went out the opposite way because you couldn't do it the other way. But you could never yep. park there, and uh, they, they you could pick up passengers and drop them off, but you had to get out of Dodge right away. That was yeah, always yeah. an interesting approach going in there, though. <laughs> Hey, well, the Don? first time I landed it, 
Let me real quick, uh, Neil. The first time I landed at Gustin, it was snowing, and we didn't see anything, and we didn't see anything till around 800 feet above the runway. And I said, well, you know, it's okay. It's low on the runway, but we landed, and everything fine. And my next trip later in the month, it was clear as a bell, and all I could see was mountains way above me all around, and I was a hell of a lot more scared the second time when I could see everything. Yeah. So, yeah. I can relate to that one because uh first time I did several approaches to the old Hong Kong airport which was the Kai Tak airport. Mm-hmm. And that basically is a, it's a it's a, a it's a quadruple approach I used to call it because you flew a you flew off Chung Chow VOR until you got the beacon would read was behind the mountain once the needle would point you'd fly to you fly a bearing to the beacon to intercept a localizer, to fly the ILS down to the checkerboard on the side of the mountain, then you did a visual to a landing. <laughs> I did that in the weather yeah. several times before I saw it in VFR one time. And like you said, once you see it VFR, you say, good grief, right down the middle of the mountains. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, now uh, Mike, I want to tell our listeners they are listening to real hangar talk. We call it hangar talk. <laughs> That's <laughs> it. Don, you have a question you want to ask uh, we us pilots. What is yeah, it, Don? This is all all hard acts to follow tonight. <laughs> question: In your experience, what do pilots make of passengers clapping upon landing? Do they generally take it as a compliment or an insult? Oh. <laughs> Let me start this one off, Jim. I guess. My first landing as a co-pilot, I landed at Washington National in a Convair 440, and and it was so hard. The bottom fell out of that Convair, and I clobbered the runway. And we pulled up <laughs> to the gate. There was no clapping, but when they deplaned the airplane, we had those uh, air stairs in the Convair. And this guy looked up to the captain, and he was down on his knees kissing the ground. True story. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt that whatsoever. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I, I, I do have a story about passengers clapping, and I'll try to make it quick, but it was about three weeks before I retired in ATA. And uh, we were 29,000 feet climbing out of uh, Fort Myers going to Midway, and all of a sudden, the airplane had two loud bangs and jumped and torn to the right. Clear skies, nothing around. I didn't know what in the hell happened. Scared me, scared. I had a bunch of Southwest pilots commuting on the back, and they told me that scared them, too. And they were fearless. But anyhow, we did, couldn't figure out what in the world happened. The plane, the flight controls were vibrating. I couldn't even see my hand. The yoke was vibrating so fast. And, of course, we declared an emergency immediately. And I was looking down at Tampa at my left window and I told him we're declaring emergency to told the co pilot who was uh, also an ex Eastern pilot that uh, declared emergency. The only time I ever declared emergency in flight, I had a lot of emergencies but never had a time to declare emergency. We declared emergency then. Make a long story short, we slowly descended, told the flight attendants, you know, when she came the senior came flying through the door and said, What the blankety blank was that? And they told him we didn't know what it was. The engines were fine. Everything was fine except the flight controls were vibrating. I think I've told this story before. Spare me if I did. And so we ended up on a descent real slow going into Tampa. And the co-pilot very uh, said, hey, let's land at uh, St. Pete because it was an ATA stop in Tampa, Washington. So we did, and we came in and landed. And then when we touched down about 20 minutes after that happened, they were clapping, cheering, crying, going on, and women were getting off and kissing the ground. And I, I was about ready to kiss it myself, to tell you the truth. And we couldn't find a dead thing wrong with the airplane. We could oh, not. Boy. And uh, they canceled the flight, and they red flagged a bunch of airplanes and got everybody where they was going, and we spent the night in St. Pete. Turned out, and I think uh, – uh, it's been mentioned before that the what happened was the inboard right flaps, uh, leading edge, uh, trailing edge flaps, the track broke and both flaps came flying out on the right hand wing and it made bang bang like that and that's yeah. what caused the vibration and I think Chuck said that uh, before one time when I told this story he said he'd heard about 
those tracks breaking, and when those clamps come out, you know, at 30,000 feet, they ain't supposed to. And you can imagine what it was like. That's the end of that war story. Well, yeah, they are. Maybe, maybe it was the maybe it was the maybe it was that couple in the in the forward lavatory that were making all of that vibration. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was on well, Easter. This was A C A. Well, one time when we were going into St. Thomas, um, I I know you guys probably know how, what kind of a flight you have when you have to go that on that short a runway. And oh, that yeah. was the most incredible thing. And there were many of us that wanted to kiss the floor that we were walking on. All of the uh, luggage was going sliding down the aisles. Um, everybody was frightened silly because we thought we were going to get killed for just going to St. Thomas. And I'm not <laughs> kidding. The, everything was sliding down the aisles. And finally, when they stopped short uh, of that runway, everybody was clapping because we never thought we'd make it out of there. <laughs> That's a true hey. story. Hey, Don. Wet weights or dry weights? Yeah. Hey, Don, no uh, let's move on to uh, red eyes because I want to talk about this one. Uh, and you got a question about that, don't you, Don? Uh, let's see. Okay, how, the question is, how do pilots prepare for an early or red-eye flight? Are there sleep requirements? Uh, are you as tired flying at, at 5 a.m. as the passengers? Anybody got any remarks about that? So I have an answer here. So you got to well, put up I, with it. Yeah, I'll tell you this. Uh, Atlantic pilots on the 727 and the 1011 <clears throat> had this uh, flight that left Atlanta about 6 or 7 in the evening and made all the stops to Seattle. And this is after you've been playing golf, shopping with your wife or something, doing day-night regular stuff. Then you had to fly all the way out there and make all the stops. Then you got to Seattle by daybreak. Then you laid over all day, and, of course, the maids are beating on the floor, and you could hear people in the hall hollering and carrying on like that. And then at 11 o'clock that night, you do the same thing backwards. After you had no sleep, hardly, in my case, I, I just hated that. And, Neil, you probably told it was that the Eastern flight on the 1011 is called Eastern Heavy Late 98 because it was always <laughs> yeah. late. You got in about 2 in the morning, and you got to the hotel in Seattle yeah. when the one sun was coming up. Then you had to fly all yeah. night coming back and get to Atlanta at 10 o'clock, and that caused me to bid off the 1011. To get yeah. back on the 727 where things were a lot more calm. Well, <laughs> I, I would never be, I could never make a FedEx pilot. I, I knew, I, I mean, the Moonlight Special, I, I knew that I couldn't I couldn't do that type of work and fly all night. And um, because that's what it was, it was all night work. And um, I flew it for mm -hmm. about six months and finally could hold a decent trip on the bid on the A300, but uh, that's pretty tough. Uh, that's You you are really wrung out uh, on those. I, I guess the FedEx pilots, I guess they get used to it. And, and uh, Well, it's also possible, too, now with all of the cer certain FAA rules that they can't yeah. do that anymore like they did before. Yeah. Well, on my end where I was basically all corporate. So, uh, you know, all of those rules, we, we used to exceed all of them all of the time. So, you know, we, mm. any, anything went with us. So we just had to live with it, whatever it was. You're right. The airplane broke. We had to fix it. We had to fly 21 <laughs> hours. We'd fly 21 hours, you know, and yeah. it's just the way we did it. You know, yeah. but anyway, that's, that's a right. that's a whole other chapter. So, yeah, I've heard hey, about uh, that on corporate flying. Uh, Don, uh, what's yes, happening sir. Thursday? Before we turn the thing over to uh, Mark Porter, and uh, Mark's going to tell us a few things happening at the New Eastern Airlines. So, uh, what's happening on Thursdays, Don? Okay, uh, Neil, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to invite all of our hosts and listeners to join us every Thursday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time when we bring you uh, 
to the air, uh, on the air, Eastern Airlines Music and History. We play the music of the greatest artists during the Eastern years and sprinkle it with a little Eastern history. Recently, we played music by Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson, Nat King Cole, and others we listened to while we were working on Eastern. Call in and share your thoughts of music and artists we selected each week. Tell us what you want to hear, and we'll try to get it on for you. Now, let's hear from Mark Porter, and he's our go-to man that can bring us up to date with what's happening at Eastern 3.0. Mark, are you there? I am here. Um, Eastern Airlines is ratcheting up and getting ready for its December 5th launch from John F. Kennedy to Guayaquil, Ecuador. Evidently, Eastern will put a second aircraft in Guayaquil as a backup should it be needed. That is a very smart strategy, guaranteeing Eastern about a 99-point on-time takeoff percentage. Um, Eastern also will have the most legroom in the skies, and Eastern will have free luggage, um, something that they advertise on their site as your bags um, are two bags are allowed or something. I would put bags fly free as that is simpler in the Spanish language. Um, Eastern evidently has 737s coming back into its fleet, and the 777s go into the skies on the first quarter of 2020. Um, that is about what we have so far on Eastern. The only thing I'd like to point out is it seems to me that there's too, they're too tight with information. So misinformation gets out there that either the airline is folding, the airline has bad maintenance, the airline has 15 routes instead of one, um, too many rumors start and I think if there is more freedom of facts getting out there, people realize that Eastern has good maintenance, that its pilots are great, that it is financially stable, and there wouldn't be any of the bad rumors that are coming out of Miami or JFK or wherever that the airline is not doing well, because that's not true. The airline is doing very well. And that's about what we have this week with Eastern. Okay, thanks so much, Mark. Dorothy, what's happening coming up here? Well, I want to tell everybody we have a membership now of 1,032. Chuck, listen to that, 1,032. Uh, we, <laughs> we have a member that just joined us, a Jeff Willis, and he joined us October 26th and started in 1969 with Eastern at Miami. He is from Oregon, and we welcome Jeff to our program. He did make a note that his dad retired captain from EAL of the A300 began with Eastern on February 11, 1963, and that's about the time that uh, our Captain Neil started as well and was captain on different type aircrafts from 1963 to 1990s. I also would like to mention that we had another uh, two sponsors, which we're very happy about, two members that sent in donations. We want to thank both of them immensely. Mr. Gerald Reedy, he's from Virginia. He's the age of 80 about now. He sent a donation of $40, and he worked at EAL from May of 67 to January 1991, and he started an aircraft services in 1967. Then he went on to ramp services later that year. He became a ramp ticket lift agent in June of 1969 and became a control center agent in October 1985 until the end, of course. He worked for FedEx until 2003 when he retired and still lives in Stafford, Virginia, where he's been since 1976. The other gentleman was Mr. Thomas Leiden from Wilmington, Illinois, and he's been our member since January of 2011. He sent a donation of $50, and unfortunately, uh, Tom doesn't have any other information I can pass on. 
We so appreciate all of these members who sent in donations so our programs can continue to bring memories of Eastern and carry on this legacy. We, too, hope they are listening and will join us sometime and tell us of a little bit about their memory of Eastern. All of the names have been posted on our website under our homepage sponsor tab. Remember, donations of $40 or more will entitle you to receive a copy of Neil's book, Wings of Many, which thankfully so is given free with your donation. So please consider making a donation. Remember, these donations keep the radio show on the air. We feel our program is well known providing and offering the Eastern family news and information as the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. Neil, mm. do you have anything of Auburn uh, University you might want to pass on? I sure do. Thanks, Dorothy. And um, a few years back at one of the REPA conventions, Captain Gene Casadaban had the idea of setting up a scholarship program at one of the schools that uh, had a good aviation uh, curriculum and we considered a few of them and we finally settled down with Auburn University and uh, we've been now when I say we the uh, the scholarship foundation has been uh, giving scholarships out for the past several years and uh, the fund has grown and uh, it'll be in per- perpetuity. I like that word. Uh, long after we're gone, it will still be in the name of Eastern Airlines. And I just received this letter. I think you might want to hear it. It was addressed to the retired Eastern Airlines Pilots Association at my office address. And it says, Dear Captain Holland, I am pleased to provide the enclosed information about your 2019-20 scholarship recipient. Thanks to scholarships like yours, our students receive an education that equips them to be active, engaged citizens and leaders in their communities and around the world. I'm going to skip the next paragraph because I want to read you the letter received from the recipient of that scholarship this year. But she goes on to say, improving educational access and affordability increases the diversity and engagement of our student body. Your scholarship ensures that the the doors to Auburn University are open to all who are ready and able to meet its high standards and that we are able to attract to Auburn the most highly qualified students. Your support exemplifies your belief in the importance of making higher education at Auburn accessible to qualified students, and I hope you take a great pride in knowing that. Because of you, our students have access to the resources that motivate, educate, and empower them to reach their goals. Sincerely yours, Jane DeFolco Parker, Vice President for Development and President, Auburn University Foundation. And Isabel Velarde is a recipient recipient this year. Uh, We usually give two of them out, and this one probably is the first one. We'll probably get another letter. But it uh, is sent to the Eastern, Retired Eastern Airline Pilots Endowed Scholarship by Isabel Velarde, sophomore, professional flight communication minor, and she lives in Dunwoody, Georgia. She says, thank you so much for this opportunity to fulfill my goal of becoming a commercial airline pilot. I am so appreciative of this scholarship because it's going directly toward my training. I am currently working to get my private pilot certificate, which I have almost completed, and this scholarship will be very useful for my flight training this next coming year as I continue taking lessons. And she's asked by the foundation, what is your favorite place on campus and why? And she says, my favorite place on campus is the new Delta Airlines Education Building. I'm always there for either my flight lessons, aviation club meetings, or even just to study in the concourse. 
the ambience of planes and aviation is so motivating to get my work done and study even harder while I am there. And she was asked what achievement or moment has had the most impact on her life. And she says, just a couple of weeks ago, I had the incredible opportunity to go on my first solo flight. Oh, how we remember those first, that first solo flight for sure. Uh, Jim Holder and, and Mike, this was the first time flying without my flight instructor in the plane. And it was an amazing moment. It was just a preview into just uh, all the training I have left and everything else I am going to be learning on my way to becoming an airline pilot. So the money there at Auburn is, uh, is being well-maintained by the foundation. And uh, we're just so thankful that we're able to continue that for a long, long time. And young people like Isabel will be the beneficiaries of, uh, of uh, people that have donated to this scholarship foundation. Jim Holder, what do you think I ought to do with this letter? This letter, would you think, well, you don't have a, a magazine anymore to put these things in, but uh, no. Dorothy. Well, we're trying, we're trying to work something up to come with it. Uh, we're going to talk about that in late January, early February for the uh, REPA board meeting up at Kennesaw, Georgia. And uh, just let us, can you send it on to me, and I'll get it to Johnny Steinmetz, our president, and yeah, I we'll discuss what we can do about it. Yeah, just go ahead. Very and good, it and also, Dorothy, Dorothy will put it up on our website. Dorothy, how yes. do you want me to send yes. it to you? Just, a copy all you of have it? to do is send me a copy of it, whether you scan it in or take a picture of it on your phone and send it. I'll be sure to get it good up idea. there. Very good. But um, uh, also, it's so, go ahead. Uh, Neil, before we end, I didn't give Thursday's program. Uh, yeah, Thursday, go ahead. November 7th, our Eastern Airlines Music and History Episode 37 will continue with the greatest recording artists and feature the 13th artist, a contemporary country singer, Reba McIntyre. The following week, Thursday, November 12th, Episode 38 will be the 14th artist, Artists, and that will be Tammy Winnett, and it's at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, now back to perhaps maybe uh, um, Jim might want to mention something about the retired Eastern pilots. Uh, well, I was going to just mention that we're having our next two uh, reunions. Now, we don't call them convention reunions uh, in 2000 and. 20 and 21 are going to be at the Kennesaw Hotel that we had last time. Uh, I've forgotten what the name of it is. I guess being Embassy. 82. Embassy Suite. <laughs> when you're 82, you can't remember much more than your name. Anyhow, <laughs> we're going to be meeting there and uh, discussing all of that, what we're going to do. But we got two <clears> more <throat> reunions to go next two years. And uh, we are going to be putting the word out on that big time, and we hope a lot of people come. You know, we had a great time back in uh, early October, and uh, that's about it with the Reaper News. Well, maybe okay. I can say something else. Nobody says anything. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, put the airplane on the ground if you guys – uh, already buckle your seat, seat belts, and uh, buckle your seats. Buckle your seat belts. Make sure they're uh, securely fastened. Is that what they say? Right. Flight yeah. Attendant. Yeah. There you go. And uh, the co-pilot makes the landing. Put that. All right. Tight. Here we go. Let's see if we can get a two-pointer out of this because we can't hear that third wheel touching down. It's a grease right. job. Yeah. All right, let's see which one is a 1011 or a 727. I'm not sure. Chuck, it's up to you now. <laughs> that was a great landing, Captain. Be sure to tune in next Monday, November the 11th. For our tribute to our veterans, it's a very moving program. This is Chuck Albright signing off on behalf of our host, Dorothy Gagnon, 
Don Gagnon, Tim Holder, Mike Scott, Mike Porter, and our producer, Neil Holland, playing our new sign-off music, Silver Wings by Merle Haggard. Mr. Producer. Headed somewhere in flight. They're taking you away and leaving me lonely. Silver wings slowly fading out of sight. Don't leave me, I cry. Don't take that airplane ride But you locked me out of your mind And left me standing here behind Silver wings Shining in the sunlight Oh, good night family and friends from around the world and good night Eastern Airlines wherever you are we love you Eastern good night everyone and good night Eastern good night good night guys thanks a lot great job good show great show slowly fading out of sight Taking you away and leaving me lonely. Silver wings slowly fading out of sight. Slowly Good night, guys. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it immensely, Neil. Good night, Great Neil. job. Great. Good night, people. Good night.